Good morning. Now that we've been comforted through prayer in His Word and made grateful for all that God has done for us, we come uh, to hear His Word together. Uh, My name's Chris Deneen, and I'm one of the pastors here. And maybe you are familiar with my face, maybe not. Uh, You'll see me come up and be involved in baptisms. I'm the one that got to hold the black trash can that was leaking from the bottom at one baptism. That was my choice. I own that. It's all I could find. Uh, Or new member opportunities uh, at the table. Uh, But I'm also a teacher. I teach at New Covenant schools full-time, and I'm what they call a bivocational pastor. So I work full-time and then have the privilege Uh, of being called to serve you as well. And so with Brian out of town, with some much-deserved rest, uh, it's my privilege to open God's Word to you this morning. And as we come to His Word, let me invite you to stand as we read it responsibly in the bulletin. I'll read the Scripture reading from this morning from Romans 5, 1 through 2, and then we'll read our memory verse that we're working on uh, together from Romans 5, 6 through 10. Hear the Word of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And now let's read together from Romans 5, 6-10. through 10. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For no one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is life to us and holds all the secrets of living a life that is pleasing to you through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come to hear from you today, would you change our hearts, open our ears that we might hear you truly speak, and by your Spirit, transform us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, that we might, with, uh, with fullness, enjoy the benefits of all that you have worked on our behalf and all that you are leading us into by your grace. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, since Brian's not here, I thought I would do my part with consistency. And I'm going to utilize this board. And I'm a teacher, so I can do this. And I may not be able to draw as many fine pictures as Brian can. I am not an artist, and my students will tell you that. I struggle with stick figures. But what I have done is brought more colors than he has brought. And so we're going we're to utilize some colors as we work through this. 
And I'm hoping this will help us as we walk through a very powerful but also very simple and straightforward passage in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. And it really is a bit of a transitionary statement. And as I thought about opening up opportunities for this passage, um, I'm struck by the benefits that we have in Christ that we're going to talk about that are laid out for us today. And I started thinking about what are the things in our lives that we get benefits from? And certainly, um, you know, when you get a real job, when you grow up and get a real job, then you get pay and you get benefits with that. Thankfully, or hopefully, there are a lot of those that you really need, but not everyone gets great benefits there. Uh, We could always want more. Uh, And I thought, what about for the rest of us? And here's one idea I came up with that my wife loves so much. She has a membership to the Panera Coffee Club. Anybody got that? You pay a monthly fee and you can go to, Star, not Starbucks, but Panera, and get coffee or any drink all day long. And she's always pawning it off on the rest of the family. So we benefit from her benefits from Panera. This place here at the YMCA, lots of benefits here. If you're a member of the YMCA, you pay a price, but you come in and you get to use all this material that you see. There's ellipticals, there are uh, bicycles, there's treadmills, there's basketball here that you can play when when the gym is open for basketball, there's yoga, there's all sorts of opportunities. There's even a pool so you can work on your swimming, get your laps, get all your exercise, Lots of benefits that you could take advantage of. And I thought even more about when I was young, benefits that I've received that I didn't pay for, that somebody else gave me. When I was young, uh, my father's business was very good. It was mica mining in the mountains of North Carolina, and we lived in East Tennessee. And from a very young age, I grew up spending my summers at the Johnson City Country Club. And I thought the world was my oyster. And so I would get up late. I was able to sleep late. They didn't make me get up at the crack of dawn to mow the yard. I could mow the yard later. And so I would get up. I would have a little breakfast about 11 o'clock. And my wife, uh, my my mom would say, all right, what are you going to do today? Mom, you're taking me to the pool. And I could go and swim all day. And I would take with me my tennis racket, because they had tennis courts too. And I would swim for a little while, get really cold, because I don't have a whole lot of body fat on me, and so I would go out into the tennis court and play some tennis, and then come back, swim some more, cool off, and they also had a very nice golf course. And I would actually go play golf and get a, get a quick nine holes in before I went back to swim and finish out my day. And of course, along the way, I would get lots of ice cream, several times. The 19th hole was the place you could get burgers right there beside the pool, and I just kept enjoying all these benefits that what I didn't realize at the time, my parents paid an awful lot for. And you can imagine there was the occasion when I would have to sit down with my parents and my dad would say, son, you've got to stop spending money at the country club. You don't need another Johnson City Country Club hat. Five ice creams in an afternoon is a bit too much. 
And I learned painfully that all these wonderful blessings I had were costing somebody something. And as it turned out, it wasn't too much longer that where the economy in the United States went down for my father's particular business, and we were no longer members of the Johnson City Country Club. And I really then appreciated the things I'd had that I didn't pay for that I lost. But I'm sharing that in part just so you see a little bit of my life, uh, but also uh, as we look to the passage this morning, we're talking about something that you and I get that we have not paid for. And we get benefits from what someone else has done on our behalf. And it's up to us to enjoy the fullness of all those benefits. But here's the, the switch. These benefits are never going to be taken away from you. And they're never going to get smaller. They're only going to get bigger. And so as we look at the passage this morning, we're invited to look into what God has made for us, realized for us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it starts with that first verse. It says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith. And so the therefore, if you've ever heard this saying, this is my favorite, you have to ask when you see a therefore, what's the therefore? Therefore. It's very important because everything that's happening right now is dealing with the justification that Jesus has worked for us, that Paul has been spending the first four chapters talking through. And Brian did it in seven months, and I'm going to do it in about six minutes. Because we're summarizing everything from chapter one through four. The therefore is to bring to mind all the things that Paul has been talking about previously in this. And I love the way that the Greek says this, this particular phrase. It's not, since we've been justified, it says having been justified by faith. And the having been justified is an aorist participle, meaning that something has been done that is carrying on into the future. And we continue to have this. Having been justified, it's finished and it's done. And now we live within that. And it's by faith. Faith is pistis, the Greek word, and it's believing the promises of God and living as if they've already come to pass. Believing the promises of God and then actively living in those promises as if you have already fully realized them. That's what faith is. And that's what dominates the whole part of justification. And what he is bringing to mind when Paul says, therefore, he is saying, the, the memory verse from the very beginning, the theme verse from chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul lays that out because immediately after he says the wrath of God has been revealed. There is a wrath that God rightly exercises and feels and executes towards all unrighteousness. And that's what it said. Against the righteousness. All unrighteousness of mankind. And we took time to pick through Paul's argument. The saying, there is no one who is righteous that exists 
out of humanity, born in the normal way. He says, if you think there's that innocent person out there that's never heard of the law of God or heard of God's people, the innocent person does not exist because they themselves have a law in their hearts and in their minds, and they break it, and therefore they are transgressing their own law, which is not sufficient. There are no innocent people. And the whole world in the Jewish mind is divided between Greek and Jew, and Paul made very clear to say that even the Greeks... They cross and transgress at every moment so that they even don't recognize God's law. They suppress it for their own thoughts and machinations. And they have transgressed against it. They've all sinned. And then he points the spotlight to the Jew and to the Jewish people who feel like they've got it made. They have God's law. They have circumcision. They have all of the Passover and all the promises of God, they have the temple and everything else, and he says, you too have sinned. Because you have the law, and you uphold the law and talk about the law, but you can't keep the law. You break it all the time. And the more you break it, the more you prevent new and and provide new conditions for yourself that you might possibly think you can make up that law. But you are all unrighteous. All of you. And Paul goes on in that litany to say their mouths are like graves, they're open tombs, their hearts are black and darkened. There is no one righteous, no, not even one. So I think that counts for everybody. And Paul lowers the gavel to say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God from Romans 3.23. Righteousness cannot come to us by the law. Paul has made that very clear. The law only shows our sin. The law, in fact, provokes sin. In the three uses of the law, law restrains sin in society so that we're not as bad as we could be as we deal with each other. The second use is that the law is a mirror that is held up to our faces that says, you're not as good looking as you think. And you're not as righteous as you think. Here's the character of God and see how you handle standing up to that. And it shows us that we do not stand up at all. It drives us from ourselves and to something else. An alien righteousness that Paul has said God has provided from an outside means outside of ourselves. And then, of course, the third use is for the Christian who now we have the character of God in us, having been justified, we live by his law as he transforms us day in, day out. Not to earn his favor, but out of gratitude that he's given us his favor. And he's changed us from the inside out. But righteousness cannot come to us by the law. Righteousness has to come from us through faith. It's through believing. Because if we're told we must do something, like the example from Brian gave us, kids, don't eat your broccoli, right? We're going, to, we're going to actually eat the broccoli. We do the things that people tell us not to do. And we don't do the things they tell us to do. But faith is different. Faith is a gift that has been given to us. And we've even seen Paul use the very heroes of the Jewish faith. The King David, who was justified by faith. And Abraham, the father of all those who believe. The father of all those who are Jews ethnically. It is by his faith and his trust in Jesus Christ who was to come, the one seed that Jesus would bring out of his own body 
It is his faith in what God would do that made him saved and justified and righteous, just like you and me. The righteousness of God has been revealed in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Having been justified by faith, we now stand in a new situation. And there are benefits that flow from it. You see that in my picture, if if you can see the flow coming down, I tried to make waterfalls, but it wasn't going to work. But flowing from justification comes three main items that Paul starts ticking off. There's actually more in chapter 5, but we're just going to deal with these first wonderful three. Justification leads us to this benefit that we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. And the Greek word for peace is irene. And so you can write a spelling in English, irene. Irene, peace is something in the Greek mentality, because the language is written in a Greek culture where Greek is the, is the most important language, um, but the Greek idea of peace is more along the lines of a cessation of hostilities. Like hostility is over, we have peace, we're not at war fighting these other people anymore. And we have brokered a peace whereby we can go about our business the way we would like for it to be. The cessation of hostilities. But remember, we're dealing with Paul, who is a Hebrew, and talking to a people who are coming from a Hebrew perspective in a Greek world. And the word for peace brings something a little bit more to it. And it's that shalom Hebrew peace that is a peace of every kind of mentality, spirituality, physicality, your emotions, everything, a wholeness of peace, shalom, peace with yourself, peace with others, peace with God that is so sought after. And that is the peace that's in view here with Irene. Because we did not have peace. Sin did two things. And we have to remember how heinous sin is. Sin, first of all, is our means of saying to God, We are in control of our own lives, and we are taking over your territory. The things that you claim as king, we are claiming for ourselves. And we are grabbing at what he has that is rightfully his. But secondly, when we do that, sin also then causes God to have a problem with us, with you and me. God is holy. He cannot abide sin in his presence, and so God comes towards us, not with mercy, not with forgiveness first, but with justice. And his wrath is rightly shown. And so there is a condition of hostility that dwells between ourselves and a holy God that must be taken care of. And so when we talk about justification and peace being given to us as a result of that justification, we have to remember that The condition has been changed because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He has done something that you and I cannot do. And our condition has moved from one of hostility towards God to one of 
acceptance now and peace. This peace that goes beyond what we can do. The present tense of the, of the verb here that goes with it, peace, uh, and really the Greek would be saying, you would say, peace we are having. Peace is actually the first word that Paul uses in this phrase to say, this is what's important. Peace, and we're having it. It's in the present tense in the Greek, and in the present tense, of course we're talking about time, the time of the action, but in the present tense for the Greek, the mindset is also not merely on the time of the action, but it's also in the way the action is moving forward. It's, it's ongoing, continuous action that is meant to be stressed. You and I think of present time as it's just a point. It happens. We ate. But here, it's not that we have peace only. It's we are having peace with God. It is an ongoing peace that goes beyond anything that we feel, anything we experience in our lives, the circumstances that are going on. It is an ongoing peace because our condition has now been changed from one of hostility into peace, and it is something that has been done for us. We are having peace. This peace is an objective peace, won by Christ. Jesus has not only removed the hostility that was on us by taking our sins upon himself at the cross, but he has also replaced that hostility with now his righteousness. His perfect obedience to the law of God. What you could not do and what I could not do, God has done for us through the person of Jesus Christ. So the penalty of our sin has been paid for and then given to us is that righteous obedience that Jesus did. So now when you appear before God, your condition is not one of a condemned sinner doomed to die. You are the best citizen in all of his kingdom. Because you appear before him with the record of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? And there is peace that you have with God. We have peace with God. Not peace of God. That is something that is true too. The peace of God is something that we feel from time to time when God uh, shows himself particularly close to us or we're leaning into him more. That's a subjective peace. But this is peace with God. Hostility has ended. The war is over. And it's not that Jesus put down those weapons. Jesus took the weapons upon himself. He didn't disarm his father. Rather, he took the full brunt of the weapons of war upon himself on the cross so that now they are satisfied. And God views you and me through the cross of Jesus, through his work, at peace. Welcome to come in. It's a done deal and it cannot be taken away from you. You cannot lose this peace because it is not dependent upon you. And so we have to separate out for ourselves what is it that Jesus has done that cannot be taken away, objective peace, this status, condition of peace, and then when do I feel not at peace with God? Certainly we heard in our confession, our sin that is ongoing, 
that's been paid for, but that we still sin separates us from God in terms of our emotional, mental capabilities towards him. But peace has been established. Jesus has already paid for that. It is a done deal, and it will not change no matter what sins you commit today, tomorrow, next week, for the rest of your life. So therefore, if that is true, why would we want to hold ourselves back from this peace? What are the things that you allow to hold you back from the peace that Christ has won on your behalf? Certainly, we look at our circumstances. Life is hard. We see peace around us in our world that does not exist. Peace we long for between ethnic groups and countries. There's war throughout the world. There's war in relationships that we have with other people. Friends that have hurt us. Spouses that have left us. We deal with a lack of peace and war within ourselves. I don't know about you, but sometimes my worst enemy is myself. And the way I think about my life and the way I think about the way I treat other people. And we have to be careful. Because the evil one will come in and try to lead you astray and tempt you and tell you that it's not true. You still live at hostility with God. See what you've done? And that's not true. And I have to remind myself by the gospel, and we have to remind ourselves in the gospel, that peace has been secured. It is not a tenuous peace. It's not a peace like the world looks and seeks after peace that is temporary. It is a permanent peace. And now you can lean into that. There is a subjective peace that Christ calls us to. And in fact, some of the ancient texts of this passage, they don't have the, we are having peace. Rather, it's an exhortation that Paul is talking about. That let us have peace. Since we have been justified by faith, let us have peace with God. And that's true as well, isn't it? All of the work that Christ has done for us has worked a steady consistent, unchangeable condition of peace, but we are also called by this justification to step into a life of peace with God and with his people. And the point is almost, if we're going to have this peace, let's have it. Let's have it all. Let's enjoy this peace. Let's live in it. Let's extend this peace to one another. For he who has been forgiven much, forgives much to others. So this peace that God has given, will we not lean into it? Why would we live at war with ourselves and with one another? Why would we listen to the guilt and shame thrown at us by Satan or by other people? Why would we not lean in and hear the words of Jesus? There is peace that I have worked for you. But when we have this peace, now that our condition has been eternally changed from one of hostility to one of ongoing peace, there's another benefit that gets declared. And it's a benefit of access. Access is the word used here. Prosagoge is the word that Paul uses. 
prosagoge, access, is how it gets translated. And uh, the, the Greek here would say, through him, through whom also access we have had by faith into this grace in which we have been established. So access, like peace, is the first real word used in the phrase. And so Paul is trying to show us, here's the next benefit, you have access. But what are we talking about with this access? Access, we have had this access, it's in the perfect tense, which means the action of access, holding this access was done in the past, it's completed, it's finished, but it carries continual work into the present tense. So it's a past action that happens in the here and now. We have had access through the work of Jesus Christ that we now still live in access today. So what is this access? And there's two ways to look at it. Access maybe could be access as in, that's like a key, right? Somebody gives you the key to the house and you can walk in anytime you want. If you're going to travel around the world, anybody got a passport? You got access anywhere in the world almost. You have access to places. You have benefits for you. This access that Jesus has created through justification for us gives us access. We have an open door. In fact, everything has been opened wide and thrown to us that we might enter in access to the Father where once there was hostility, now there's peace. And because there is peace, the doors are thrown open and we can walk into the very throne room of God. Isn't that amazing? But there's another piece to this access that I think is important to point out that the ancient world would understand a lot more than us. Access also can be translated introduction. An introduction. So an introduction is when you're introduced to somebody, right? God is not surprised with who we are. He knows us intimately in and out. But here the picture is through having been justified by faith, we are now taken by Jesus, by the hand, into the very throne room of God that he's opened that access and we are introduced to the Father. In the ancient world, one of the classes I teach, I talk about the Persian kings, the great Persian kings, Darius and Xerxes, who are also biblical characters. Uh, so they're real people. They built this marvelous city at the height of the Persian power it called Persepolis. And they built it in the middle of nowhere. They built it up on retaining blocks, so no matter how you approached the city, you would see it way up on high, shining and gleaming. It had running water, cold water, had a plumbing system. And this was meant to be the great palace and city to show forth how powerful they were. And if you got to go to that city, you could see how beautiful it was, but you needed to have some better access to get in because there was a great courtroom in the city leading into the palace. And the great Apadana, this Persian covered portico that was probably at least this big, uh, but in the ancient world, they didn't have structures that could hold this many people in an open area. But you had apadanas that would cover it, and you would walk into the hall of a hundred columns. 
It was a marvel of the ancient world. Perfectly symmetrical columns to hold up a structure this, this size where you could enter into closely where King Darius, King Xerxes, the king of kings as they were styled, you could enter into their presence. Really, you could go into the room that they were in if you were lucky. But they themselves were behind another curtain in their own little private chamber. And if you were really fortunate, if you were really special, if you had earned some special opportunity, you could walk close to the curtain that they were behind and you might, just possibly you might, get to see the outline of their shadow through the curtain. And that would make your life. It would be something special indeed. As Americans, we're not used to that. We're used to having access to any place, anywhere we want to go. And the advent of social media makes that even worse. We think we can talk to anybody anytime. You can even text the president if you want. Our social butterflies in, in social media world, you can have access and it makes you think as if you really know them because they're interacting with you on some sort of platform. And that has skewed our understanding of what's happening with the God of the creation, the true King of Kings. You cannot just go in and say, hey God, good to see you. You must be formally introduced. And from that introduction, now you have relationship that is possible. And Jesus takes you and me through faith in his blood and his work and introduces us to the Father and says, here's my son, here's my daughter. And we are gained an introduction, which now a relationship has been established for us, and now we live in that relationship. And the access is one of permanence. You go in, and you are introduced to the Father, and guess what? You stay there. You don't ever have to leave. You're welcome to set up your own chair, your own cot, and you stay invited into the very presence of God Almighty for eternity. That's the access that's in view here that Jesus has worked for you. So why would we not stay? What are the things that keep us from remaining in the presence of God Almighty? The one who created us, who loved us, we tend to run away, and we tend to not believe. Access is something that is vitally important, and it's almost too good to be true for us. Access was there in the garden with Adam and Eve. They had access to the Father, and He walked and talked with them, but sin drove them out, away from that access. Access was in the temple. God had erected a place where He would dwell with His people, and the Holy of Holies was the site in the middle of the temple and it was moved and, and, and put a curtain in between so that even the high priest, one day a year, he could only go in and that was your access, but it was limited. But now Jesus has torn literally that curtain and torn the cosmic curtain that separates us from God and we have access, we have introduction. And why would we not enter in and stay? What are the relationships that you have that would be more important than 
practicing that relationship through prayer and meditation and just listening? What are the, what are the things you seek after that are better dwelling places? Who are the people you want to please that you would run after when you have the God of creation as the one who would be your first that you would spend time with? Why would we choose time anywhere else? I want to become more and more familiar with the presence of my God. Don't you? You have access. He's welcoming, wooing even. Come, sit. Hear from me. Know me. Access, a relationship that has been established for us. It has been established, not by ourselves, but by Jesus. And it is firm. The word that, uh, that goes with this, being established, is that someone else has done the establishing so you can stand in God's presence. When everything else in your life is falling apart and the world is crumbling, the gospel says you can stand because Jesus has caused you to stand in the presence of God. So stand and enjoy the most richest affair from Him. And then lastly, we have hope. The third benefit we're looking at is this benefit of hope. Elpis is the word in the Greek. And I always... I always think of this as Elvis. I, I grew up in, or lived in Memphis for a long time, so I always think Elvis gives hope. That's the way I remember it. Elpis, just this word for hope. <clears throat> hope that is there. Hope that we are boasting in. And I love that piece. It starts with we're boasting in something, and it's hope. But boasting is a very difficult uh, thing for us to keep in mind because Paul has already said in this passage, we, there is no boasting for us. You got no boast. Whatever you think you can bring to the table, uh-uh, keep it away. There is no boasting whatsoever. But now, having been justified by faith, we've got a big boast. We're boasting. We're exulting. We are so excited about this hope that we have. Hope in the glory of God. So hope is this very, very important, important topic Hope, a definition maybe the best would be the expectation of what is sure to come. Hope is the expectation of what is sure to come. That's the biblical definition of hope. But of course, you and I are all too familiar with the worldly definition of hope. And it's more of a wish, wishful thinking. Uh, we're not talking about wishful thinking here. A dream that has no tangible reason to come to pass. And in fact, this is the thing that enamors us in our culture, isn't it? I call it the Disney hope. When you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you. Jiminy Cricket sang it a lot better than I did in Pinocchio. But that's the type of hope that we're used to, that we know. But this is a different hope. This is a sure and certain hope. You have a certain result that you are looking towards. There is a hope 
that goes beyond human dreams to what God has realized for you. He's already secured a hope that is more than you can ask or think or imagine. And I can imagine a lot. And whatever God has in store, it's bigger and better. And so we exult, we boast in this hope, and it's in his glory. The glory of God Almighty. We were made as human beings to be bearing the glory of God to this creation. And sin took that away. We ruined it. But now there is glory that has been renewed in us through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ because you have been justified. You are being made more and more into the image of Jesus and bearing his glory to a watching world that does not know glory, who is blinded and looks for other things and you boast in it. The glory of God is something that drives our faith, our hope, our desires. It is the end game of our lives. If you think heaven is the end game that you're waiting for, you've got your sights set on the wrong subject. The end game of all creation is that the God of creation would be glorified for his creation. And when you see God glorified, friends, when you get a taste of his glory, and you get excited about what God has done and is continuing to do and promises in hope that he will bring to accomplishment. Now that is what you can live your life on. If you think celebration for winning the Super Bowl is something, if you think getting that job is something to celebrate, if getting your high school diploma, college diploma, whatever degree you're looking for, if you think that's exciting and something to boast for and to, and to be glorying in, then you really need to take a look at the glory of God. There is nothing that excites a human being than the believer who sees God's glory in action. And I see it when I see you and other Christians when, when you are down and you're beaten and the Lord lifts you up and causes his light to shine in you, to be faithful in the moment, to say no to temptation, to move towards somebody else in peace and reconciliation when they've harmed you deeply, and see relationships restored. That glory is just a foretaste of what God has in store. And so we don't learn, yearn merely for heaven and we don't yearn for the glory that will be revealed in us when we see him. Rather, we are boasting and glorying and seeing God get what he deserves. I want God to get what he deserves, and he deserves glory. No other being in all the cosmos deserves that, but he does. And when he gets it, friends, your life makes sense. You have true joy, and you have true peace. And you are excited and boasting because God did it again. And when he gets his glory, he promises because you're his daughter or his son in Christ, you get that glory too. Your glory is a byproduct to the glory of God Almighty. And it is a sure and certain result. He will have his glory. He will put all sin in this 
warring world against him, and he will bring you safely through it to stand on the last day as you see him get glory and every knee bows, every tongue confess that he is Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have poured into us these wonderful benefits of your salvation, of justification, peace with God that can never be taken away, access that is irrevocable, and a hope that is sure and certain as we long for your coming and ruling in our lives and in your world forever and ever. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And all of God's people said, Amen.